One commentator wrote that Psalm 8 is what a hymn should be. It is celebrating the glory and the majesty of God. The majesty of God is displayed in unexpected ways. It takes us beyond the highest heavens. It takes us back to the very beginning in the book of Genesis where we joyfully view the Creator God and then the psalm directs us to view mankind. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. Psalm 8 is a brief ray of sunlight in the middle of a dark storm. Psalm 6 and 7 were somewhat bleak, definitely dark. Psalm 6, David had sinned against the holy God and he was praying that God would have mercy upon him. And then in Psalm 7, we see David, the psalmist, being falsely accused and he is crying out to God that he would um, deliver him from those who have slandered him. Psalm 10, again, it'll get dark. But in Psalm 8, we see this brief ray of sunlight in this dark storm. In the midst of this darkness, Psalm 8 is perhaps one of the most glorious hymns in the entire Psalter. If I were to ask and take a survey of people who are familiar with the Psalter and ask, what is your favorite psalm? Probably Psalm 23 is going to go to the top of the list, right? The Lord is my shepherd. And then after that, probably you're going to get Psalm 19. You're probably going to get Psalm 100, Psalm 50, maybe Psalm 91. But certainly somewhere in a top five or at least a top ten, Psalm 8 is going to be one of the most significant hymns that David, or the, that is in the entire Psalter. It is a psalm of praise. We've, we've talked um, a little bit in, as we're going through the psalms that there are different types of psalms. Um, there are psalms of lament. We, we've seen that. Last week was a psalm of lament. Um, it was a psalm of grief. We've seen psalms of penitence or, or penitential psalms. There are psalms that are pleading to God for forgiveness of sins. We see um, psalms of ascent. These, these were psalms that were sung as the people traveled the road up to Jerusalem to engage in worship. So as they were ascending the hill to Jerusalem, they sang out psalms and they were called psalms of ascent. Today is, pro- is a psalm of praise. Some students of the Bible have even labeled it a messianic psalm. That is, it is a psalm that points to the coming Messiah. And there is probably a good argument to make that this is a messianic psalm because Jesus himself quotes from this saying that and, and identifies um, him as being kind of the subject or the recipient of the praise of this psalm. And The New Testament authors, Paul and the author of Hebrews, refer to this psalm directly as referring to the person of Christ. So one of the things we we like to encourage from time to time, I I often forget, but I like to encourage families as you're driving home, as you're um, uh, 
sitting around at the, the lunch table this afternoon or the dinner table this evening. Um, perhaps you might use as a point of discussion, what do you think? Is this a messianic psalm? Why or why not? And uh, engage your family in a discussion about this or perhaps discuss um, how do we see the majesty of God? How do we see the glory of God? And uh, use that as an opportunity to talk about the beauty and wondrous uh, glory of God. Well, Psalm chapter 8. Do we not have a PowerPoint? Well, let's, uh, let's, let me quickly and very briefly give you an outline of where I want to go in, the, uh, uh, in my message today. What we're going to see is that the majesty of God is primary. The majesty of God is the big topic. It is the primary subject. The majesty of God is on display. But here's the surprising thing. The majesty of God is on display in his human creation. That is in his human, in in the creation of humanity, men and women, mankind, God's majesty is on display. So I've, I've, uh, I've outlined it uh, this way. The first part will be the majesty of God in verses 1 and 2. And we can, Sawyer, we can go to slide 2. Then we will see the frailty of man in verses 3 and 4. Then we will see the dignity of man in verses 5 through 8. And then we see the majesty of God summing up the entirety of the psalm. So if you will, uh, turn with me in your Bibles and follow along as we read the inerrant word of the living God. Psalm chapter 8. To the choir master, according to the Giddeth, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven, the fish of the sea, and whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Our text begins with the majesty of God. I want you to note, a lot of times we can determine much about a psalm by the way the psalm ends or begins and the way it ends. 
oftentimes we can see a progression. Perhaps David or the, 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 psalm, the, the author of the psalm is at the beginning in a place of turmoil or difficulty and by the end he is in a place where he has um, come to a resolution of that difficulty. And you can see a progression and we can learn much about the psalm by how it begins and how it ends. Psalm 8 is no different. We learn a lot about the psalm simply by the first verse and the last verse. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The psalm begins with that, those words and it concludes with those words. This is what we might... This is a literary device. This is um, a, a poetic device. Uh, some Bible students would refer to this as an inclusio. You don't need to know that word. But you could refer to it as bookends, that the, the psalm begins with one thing and it ends the exact same way, and so that everything in between is describing the majesty of God. It begins with the majesty of God, then there's a bookend on the other side, and it It talks about the majesty of God and everything in between those two bookends, everything between verse 1 and verse 2 is a description of the majesty of God. It is a framework. Everything within these bookends describes the majesty of God. This indicates to us that the entire psalm is about the majesty of God. Now, here's maybe the counterintuitive or the surprising aspect about this is that the majority of the verses between the bookends, the majority of verses in this psalm are a description of man and his place in the created order. Everything between the bookends is about mankind. So we can come to an understanding then that the psalm is about how humans are viewed in relationship with God. That the glory and majesty of God is somehow displayed in his human creation. The majority of verses in this psalm are a description of man and his place in the created order. And yet the psalm does not begin with man, but with the celebration of the creator God and his glorious majesty. John Calvin in his Institutes of the Christian Religion, his first chapter is just mind-boggling. But he, he notes this, and And I think it's significant. He writes this. On the other hand, it is evident that man never attains to a true self-knowledge until he has previously contemplated the face of God and come down after such contemplation to look into himself. In other words, we never truly know ourselves until we have first contemplated the glory and majesty of the face of God. We must first have a, an understanding of who God is before we can understand who we are. It's interesting, uh, just this week, uh, I, I saw a seminar uh, that was being offered at, at a, uh, uh, with, with a particular ministry. And, and 
And the agenda was, what we need to do is we need to look at ourselves first and then we can view God as He truly is. And I said, no, it's backwards. Psalm 8 first views God for who He is and once we perceive who God is, then we can understand uh, who we are as the creation of this majestic God. Because humans... I hate to say it, we tend to see ourselves perhaps in a, in a distorted light. We tend to see ourselves as upright and wise. We tend to see ourselves as holy and strong. And generally good. But when we first contemplate the majesty and the glory of God and then view ourselves, our perception, the perception of ourselves is likely to be altered. So, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. We need to begin by gazing upon the glory and majesty of God. You should note, In Psalm chapter 8, after this phrase that begins or brackets the beginning and the end of the psalm, we see this, How majestic is your name in all the earth, and you have set your glory above the heavens. And so we see both earth and heavens. This is another poetic device. Um, uh, It is... Fancy words, a merism. You don't need to know that term either. But it basically, by speaking of heaven and earth, it's describing the entirety of creation. It would be like saying, so we might even use that term, I would move heaven and earth to help you. Or perhaps you might use a, a, a parallel phrase. You might use something along the lines of from A to Z. Boy, so-and-so, Joe knows computers from A to Z. In other words, he knows them backwards and forwards. He knows everything there is to know about computers. It's talking about his exhaustive grasp of the knowledge of computers. And so God's name is majestic in the earth. His glory is above the heavens. The splendor of God is on display in the entire created order. There is nowhere where he is not exalted. His name is majestic. How majestic is your name? The name of God there, and uh, we've talked a a bit about this as we are in the Psalms, Um, the the name of God there is, you will note that, uh, O Lord, the first Lord, all the letters are capitalized, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. This is a reference to the covenant name of God. It is a reference to, we pronounce it Yahweh. Some people might even uh, have, understand kind of the, uh, some people might even use the word Jehovah, though that's not actually accurate. But Yahweh, the, there are four letters, but anyways. This is the covenant name of God. It is the name by which God made himself known to Moses. Moses was in the wilderness and he saw this burning bush and he went over to to check it out, what's going on, because it's burning, but nothing else. It's not being consumed. And here it is that God spoke to Moses and told Moses, you are to go into Egypt and set my people free. And Moses said, that sounds... That sounds fine. Who should I say sent me? 
And God says, tell them I am sent you. I am that I am. This is the covenant name of God. Tell them that Yahweh sent you. I am that I am. Some people might say this is I will be who I will be. But the, but the intent, however we might translate that, um, that statement, whether it is, it draws our attention to the fact that God is self-existent. I am that I am. He is the self-existent God. He is the uncreated creator. There is God and then there is everything else. He is not dependent on His creation, nor is He a part of His creation. God is separate. He is a distinct being. And so, O Lord, the self-existing God, who was and is and ever will be, we read this in the very first verse of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so the psalm begins that you, the self-existent one, the uncreated creator, your name is glorious. Your entire being, who you are, is beyond compare. Your glory is above the heavens. That is, your splendor is above the heavens. Church, wherever we might go, we cannot escape the wondrous display of who He is. When we gaze upon the most delicate flower petal and we see the powerful movements of the earth in plate tectonics, when we view the vastness of the space, when we consider the wonder of angelic beings, we, like the psalmist, cry out, How majestic is your name! Well, we've established the glorious name of God. The next issue we want to address is how does God display His glorious name? How does God display His glory? And we might say, well, we, we probably all have various ideas, but... The psalmist surprises us in a, in a very counterintuitive and surprising manner. God, the psalmist informs us that God displays his glory through the agency of children. That's an amazing thing, and, and I'm going to come back to that. But let me just briefly uh, skip ahead and deal with something that seems so odd to me. And I'll come back to... Um, God displaying his glory and his strength in babies and in infants. In verse 2, out of mouths of infants and babies, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. That just baffled me. This God, this majestic God, who is glorious above all things, the uncreated creator, who in the beginning created the heavens and the earth, has foes, has an enemy. Has, has those who would oppose his majesty. That just is amazing to me, very surprising that the glorious God has enemies. There are those who witness the glory of God and yet remain enemies of the one whose glory is evident. David observes the heaven and is in awe of the one who created them, while others view the same majesty and resist him, even 
blaspheme Him, even curse at Him, shake their fist at Him, and say, I will not bow down to you. We see this in John chapter 1, speaking of Christ and His um, pre-existent glory. We see Him um, putting on flesh and dwelling amongst us. And then in John chapter 1, verse 11, we read this. He, speaking of Jesus, the Word who put on flesh, the Word who created all things, put on flesh and dwelt among us, and it says this. He was in the... I'm sorry. says... He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Here is the glorious, uncreated creator standing in the midst of his creation. It literally says he came home, and they did not receive him. Over in John chapter 5, verse 43, we see a very similar reference In John chapter 5, verse 43, we read this. This is Jesus speaking. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. That's an amazing thing. I came in the name of my Father, and you do not receive me. Perhaps the the epitome, the, the apex of the person who has seen the splendor and glory and majesty of God Almighty and rejected it as the person of Judah, Judas. Judas walked with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He heard his... He was there at the Sermon on the Mount. He was there at the Olivet Discourse. He has seen his... Jesus raised people from the dead. In fact, he has been given a power and authority to do those very things. And to our knowledge, he actually did and performed miraculous works. And then, for a price of 30 pieces of silver, Judas said, yeah, I think I'll take that over the glory and splendor of Christ who is Lord of all. It's amazing that there are foes and that there are enemies to the one who has displayed his splendor so perfectly and so beautifully. So, then, I might ask the question, how does the majestic God war against these enemies? What is the weapon that this majestic God uses to war against the foes and against the enemies? And here we'll go back to where I just diverted away from. The weapon of God is babies and infants. God displays his glory. God displays his splendor. God displays his majesty in children. Like I said, counterintuitive. Probably not what you and I were expecting. We were probably expecting something, some, I don't know, an F-15 or something. God displays His glory and His power and His strength in children. The glo- God's glory is not only displayed 
in the vastness of space, but through the youngest and the weakest and the most vulnerable. Yes, God displays his glory in foolish things. 1 Corinthians one twenty-seven. We read this. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing that the things that are, so that no human might boast in the presence of God. God has chosen to display his majesty in children so that nobody can claim that, well, I've got this all figured out. His glory. So God displays his glory by using weak things. His glory is displayed in weak things because then it is obviously his power and not ours. Church, have you ever shared the gospel with somebody and felt utterly and completely unqualified and unworthy? Every time. The glory of God is displayed in that. Take heart. When you catechize your children and you teach them and they, and they, they recite back to you um, that which you have taught them, God in all of heaven, the majesty of God is on full display in the lisping of your children. When you are feel unqualified, His majesty is on display. And I'll just add a personal note. There is not a single Sunday where I stand up here and feel qualified. And I pray, this was encouraging, I pray that somehow in my inability, I, I read this psalm and I'm like going, I, I am not a wordsmith like this. I, I do, I, I'm not that eloquent. I'm not that smart. I'm not that insightful. And yet somehow, in that weakness, God displays his glory and his splendor. I've shared this before. I'll share it again. I'm generally a a person who sleeps well. There are very few times that I do not sleep well. I was on a bicycle tour, and I slept in an abandoned train station, and the train, I was told, went by about every 45 minutes. I didn't know, because I slept, I mean, like right outside, like closer than the road is to us. That train went by, and I slept right through it. One of the nights that I did not sleep was the night that I accepted this position as pastor. It was sometime probably in December or November of 2020. I'm sorry, of 2000. And my concern was, who am I to lead your people? I am not qualified. I am not smart enough. I am not visionary enough. I do not have the skills. I do not. And somehow God said, well, this is, you're it. And I pray that through my inabilities, the wisdom and the majesty of God is on full display. I say that not to point to myself, but just as a personal testimony of the majesty of 
of God being displayed in weak things. God makes himself great through the weakness of the weak. And so as you teach your children to praise God, God is establishing strength. It was so interesting. I don't know, about three weeks ago, we were talking with Charlie outside of the Reconciled Church, and he told us how how Nora shared the gospel. Nora's what, four? Three? And she shared the gospel with one of her classmates. This is the glory of God on display in a three-year-old. How does God make his majesty and his splendor known through three-year-olds? So as you teach your children to praise God and they can barely make the words out and you, you don't even understand what they are saying, they are lisping. God is glorified. The majesty of God is on full display. We should note also that Jesus himself used this verse In Matthew chapter uh, 21, verse 16, and I think we should have that up on the screen. I'm pretty sure I put it up there. Matthew 21. And <clears throat> in Matthew 21, Jesus has just come into uh, to Jerusalem. It's been his triumphal entry, and people have been singing praise, Hosanna in the highest, and they've been praising God. And then, um, of course, the, the scribes and the Pharisees had, had issues with that, and then it talks about how Jesus... Um, came uh, amongst many and he began to heal the sick and deal with those who um, who were cast down. And Jesus is healing the blind man and the children in the crowd cried out in praise of his glorious work. The religious leaders were utterly indignant. Here's the amazing thing. The children recognized the Messiah silencing their enemies. Jesus then also accepts their praise. In other words, children bear bore witness to the king on that amazing day. So when we say, well, I don't know if I can do that ministry. I don't know if I can do what God is, is calling me to do. I don't know if I can understand God's word. I don't know if I can do this particular thing. I don't know if I can raise my children. I don't know if I can age well. I'm weak. I am unqualified and I am inarticulate. Perfect. You are the instrument God will will use to display His glory. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens out of the mouths of babies and infants. You have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. So we've seen the majesty of God. The psalm now moves to address the frailty of mankind. When I look at the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? When I look at your heavens, note the possessive, they are your heavens. They're not my heavens. The stars and the solar systems do not belong to me. They do not belong to humankind. They belong to God who created them, not with his hand, but with his fingers. David acknowledges the power of God. The one who uses the unlearned to silence the wise created all things 
with his fingers. It is God who gives the solar system its order. It is God who has set the stars in their place. It is God who establishes the universe. Those things, all those things, the heavens exist by God's decree. They shine forth at God's command. They are, they display the splendor and glory of God because they fulfill the purpose that they were created that they were created for, and they do so by reflecting the glory of the sun in the place that God has determined. Folks, when I look at the heavens, they are not randomly or accidentally conceived. These are the works of the very fingers of God. And David is most likely sitting on the, I'm picturing David sitting on the roof of his, of his house or perhaps out in the desert somewhere and he sees the constellations and is in utter awe of the, of the creative power and majesty of God. And then he asks a very significant question. What is man that you would take thought of him? In view of the glorious nature of God, David now looks at the human creation and wonders why. How? Why would God be mindful of a being such as myself? Why would God even care about his human creation? I want to take note here that what is man that you are mindful of him? There are a number of ways that a Hebrew author could have, uh, a number of words that the Hebrew author could have used for the word man, um, the most common would, or one of the more common is Adam, or we would say Adam. Um, this is used frequently in, in regards to uh, describing or translating the word man. Adam, the other word would be ish. But, but the author, David, uses neither of those words. So in contrast, he uses the word enosh. And so in contrast to the eternal, enduring, powerful display of God in creation, man is rightly viewed as a recent, created, temporal, fragile man. This word for man is often used in reference to his weakness and his mortality. Gerald Wilson in his commentary writes this. He says, By contrast, Enosh most often emphasizes human frailty, weakness, and mortality. Thus, the use of that term here is no accident, but intentionally stresses the distance the psalmist experiences, experiences opening up between the, the glorious creator God, Yahweh, and his far less significant and less powerful human creatures. This is recognizing that there is this vast chasm between, David is saying, what is Enosh? What is man? When I look at you, there is this vast chasm between me and between you. Who can span that chasm? And this is why David says, what is man? What is Enosh? That somebody as glorious as you would have any concern or any care. What's implicit here is that God cares for and is mindful of this creature. That God is cares for and is mindful of Enosh, of man. He is not the God of the deists who claims that there is a creator God who wound everything up and then 
disassociated himself. He has no concern or oversight over his creation. He doesn't really care for mankind. He's just out there somewhere. Here we see that God is no distant deity with bigger concerns. Sometimes I hear people, and maybe I'm guilty of it myself, saying, oh, I don't think I'll bring this to God. He's got bigger things to concern himself with. He is not that God. He is not the God with bigger things. He cares for you in your weakness and your mortality and your finitude. God has a unique care for his human creation. That's an amazing thing. The majesty of God is seen in his care for frail men and women. And so we've seen the majesty of God. We have briefly taken a look at the frailty of man. And now let's look at the next part, which is the dignity of man. And such an important topic in this day and age where we have forgotten our history and we don't know where we came from. And so we have a skewed view. We probably either think too highly of ourselves or we think too lowly of ourselves. And there are many people today who think that they are nothing, that they have no value, that they are no good, that they are um, without value whatsoever. And here we see the dignity of mankind. Yet, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. That's amazing. You've crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen. You've given him and made him in a favored position, a little lower than the heavenly beings, crowned with glory and honor. The moon and the stars display the glory of God. In other words, they are doing what God has ordained them to do. How do they glorify God? By doing exactly what God created them to do. Yet man who often rebels against God is ascribed a place of honor. You and I often rebel against God and yet God has given mankind a place of honor. The ultimate display of God's glory in humankind came in the incarnation of his son, Jesus Christ, who was made for a little time lower than the angels. In fact, the letter of Hebrews, I think, accurately or correctly refers to this passage in Hebrews chapter 2. I'll begin with verse 5. Listen to the author, the inspired author of Hebrews. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control at present. We do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, 
crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering and death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. And so here we see in the letter of Hebrews, this is this passage from the Psalms is being ascribed definitely to the person of Christ who at one time was um, was the second person of the Trinity, God of gods, light of lights, very God of very God, and he put on flesh and dwelt among us and was made uh, for a time a little lower than the angels. And here we find the condescension of Christ in the incarnation and his and his exaltation of King of kings and Lord of lords, to whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess. We see this so clearly in the book of Philippians. Here Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 and following. He says, Who, though he was in the form of God, speaking of Christ, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so we see this verse You've been made a little lower than the angels. Certainly, it, it, and I'll get to how, how it describes us, but certainly it is most importantly ascribed to the person of Christ who came and put on flesh, dwelt among us, and died for, at the hands of sinful men for the sins of men, that he, but because he was sinless, death could not hold him. He rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and from there he will come again to judge the living and the dead. But here Christ was, had all dominion and authority and was subjected to this world to come, to this world. amazing here, speaking of humankind, how God has crowned him with glory and honor and given him a dominion. I want to focus just briefly on this idea of dominion. First of all, we should note that he has given, given mankind dominion over the, created, the creation. But you will note it is not domination over the creation, but dominion. Given dominion then I would argue, is a reflection of God. God has dominion over all, and we reflect God. We, we display God's splendor when we also carry out uh, the dominion that he has given to us. We display God by stewarding his creation, by mirroring his work. When we steward his creation, the things that he has made, he has given us dominion over Uh, the earth and over the cattle and over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air. And we are called on to to steward them. You will note that we are not the boss. We are not the king. God is the king. It is his creation and he has given us the... I would say he's called us to be vice-regents of his creation. 
We are image bearers. We bear glory and honor and dominion. Let me just talk real briefly about the image of God. This is a a vast subject, but let me talk because we, we often refer to humankind as the image of God, and that would be correct. We find that in in the first chapter of Genesis, that God created mankind in, in his image. He created them male and female, um, the, and, and as male and female. This is the image of God. So what is the image of God? Well, that's been answered in, in, in a wide range of, of, uh, uh, of statements. And, and some people say, well, we're in the image of God because we're rational creatures and God is a rational creature. Or we're in the image of God because we're relational and God is a relational being. And, and, and those things are likely true. Or those things are true. Not likely true. They are true. And I think that does help us in understanding how it is that we are created in the image of God. But I think that it, there, there is a different, a, a more, um, a manner in which we are the image of God that would take priority over those things. And to understand how we are in the image of God is to understand how images were understood in the ancient Near East. You see, it was not uncommon for kings to make statues of themselves or to make statues of their gods. And then they would set up, the, the, the king would set up the statue of himself in all of the different areas of his kingdom. In the various realms of his kingdom, he would set up statues of himself as a visible representation to the people in a distant land. In other words, by setting up these statues of himself in all of these different areas, he's saying, now these people in far distant lands can see the invisible king. I'm in a place where they would never see me, but by this statue, by this image, people now see who I am. We see this in ancient Near Eastern worship. They would set up their gods as images. And when a, when a person would conquer, when, a, when a, a king would conquer a territory, they would tear down their gods and they would set up an image of their god so that the image of God would be seen. And so as the, their kingdom expanded, the image of God expanded along with their kingdom. I hope that makes sense. So when we talk about human creation being the image of God, it is the means, we are the means by which God is to be made known in all the earth. So that the glory of God would cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. What was the original creation mandate that he told to Adam and Eve? Be fruitful and multiply. Make more images. Make more images of me. And then as you spread across the earth, my image goes out beyond the garden's boundaries and my image covers the earth as the waters cover the sea. Of course, that got marred. But that was the original creation mandate. But today, you and I, I think that creation mandate stands not so much in having children, But what is the Great Commission? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Here's the glory of God. Make disciples of all the nations. Make image bearers. Make more images of me. 
How? By making disciples of all the nations. This is the image of God now extending, covering the earth as the waters cover the sea. Be fruitful and multiply. Yes, have children, but also make disciples. Make disciples, make more image bearers so that my name is glorified. You, God, has given dominion to mankind. We are um, we bear by having dominion this is a reference to the fact that God has made us in his image he has dominion we have dominion he has glory he's given us glory he has honor he has given us honor and now he says you bear my image now go make more images not by paintings not by statues but by making disciples of all the nations So, God has called us to be stewards of his creation. Mankind has been given dominion over God's creation. This is limited authority to bring the cosmos under the authority of God. We see this fully in the person and work of Jesus. During Jesus' earthly ministry, he demonstrated his authority over the earth. We see in Mark chapter 1, verse 13, where he, he dwelt with the wild beasts. We see him having authority over the fish of the sea. He told, he told the fishermen, they said, well, we fished all night. These are professional fishermen. And he said, yeah, throw your net on the other side of the boat. What? That doesn't make any sense. No, I have authority over the fish of the sea. Throw your net on the other side of the boat. And there was a great haul. During his ministry on earth, Jesus demonstrated his authority over all the earth. In fact, he even says that when he is departing, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. At his ascension, he is crowned as ruler of all. And in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22, I think we have it up there. speaking of Christ, and he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. At Jesus' ascension, he is crowned ruler of all. All things are placed in subjection under him, which means you and I are under his rule, under his authority, and he is our Lord and our King. He gave all, put all things under his feet, gave him his head over all things to the church. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Father God, we come before you this day and we thank you, Lord. I recognize that I am, that my words are, fall far short of the beauty and splendor of you and of this incredible psalm. But I pray, Father God, that through the weak things and the inarticulate lispings of the past 40, 45 minutes, Lord God, your name would be seen as powerful and mighty and strong. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Hallelujah. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing. Mm -hmm.